to episode 31 of the Hoop Threads podcast here with Mark Edwards, uh, a great trainer out of uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Mark, how's it going, man? I'm blessed, man. How are you? Just, uh, it's been a long day. We both we both have had a long day, apparently. Just got done. Uh, I was coaching the freshmen today, so I have no voice. Uh, so Ooh. That's always. I know. I know that was rough. <laughs> I was Anytime watching. Think freshman is rough. I was watching uh, Jalen Suggs him throw that like full court pass that he had like earlier this week, and I was mm-hmm. just like, man, like a three man weave is a struggle right now. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be yeah. nice. This dude's throwing one, uh, you know, uh, ninety foot pass with one hand. But, anyways, let's get going here. Uh, let's talk about your playing career. Um, so, you know, tell me about your playing career. You know, how you came up in the game and kind of the basketball culture in uh, New York City. Um, wow. I mean, I came out, I came out playing in the late eighties, um, New York city, went to Canarsie high school. Um, I was a, a late bloomer in regards to basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone in New York city played basketball. That's the one thing about the city that's, you know, unique. It's, it's a city game, like literally, you know, um, everyone mm-hmm. knows about the game. Like we're big fans of the, of, of the game. Like we study, stats you know every day in the morning i would buy the daily news or the new york post Mm -hmm. so that i could look at the stats and that's how you learn about the game is able to read the stats and kind of figure out like who's supposed to be good because they average certain amount of points field goal percentages wins losses like you really studied the numbers so when i played i know i always knew how many points i had up to 30. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and my goal was always to get to 20 points as quickly as possible, hopefully by halftime of games or whatever, because then at that point, I knew what the coach, their coach would be saying at halftime, which is let's stop him, you know, double him, whatever. And I was always good with finding teammates because I could see where the other man was coming from. And I would just find my guy, make sure my guy was you know, ready to receive passes or whatever. So you know, it was a very intuitive game for me because it was second nature. We played so much and it was a part of your your life. It wasn't, I wasn't a kid that played basketball. I was a ball player. I slept with a basketball in my bed. Um, at Canarsie, I didn't even try for the team until my 10th grade year. And I had never played organized basketball. So I literally learned how to play organized basketball in the 10th grade. Everything before that was just playing in the park. You know, playing five on five, three on three, one on ones, two on twos, whatever we could play. But we had an intimate understanding of the game because we watched basketball, we studied the stats. And then um, my high school coach, um, Lou Perlmutter, <laughs> the Perlmutters, there were two short little Jewish guys. Both of them were about four foot ten, four foot nine. And they were the two best shooters I've ever seen in my life. They looked like Fred and Barney Rubble, uh, Fred Flintstone, Barney Rubble. It was, it, it was amazing. One could shoot threes, well, not threes, long distance jumpers. The other one could hit free throws and just wouldn't miss. These <laughs> guys taught me how to play basketball. They taught me the correct spacing on the basketball court yep. through learning the three on two, two on one drill. Mm. And it was, you know, point guard, push the ball up in the middle of the court, got two wings, make your pass. If he doesn't take the shot, step towards him, get the ball back, don't throw cross-court passes, you know, initiate your shot, um, always be back on defense, um, two-on-one spread the floor, attack the attack the goal until somebody steps towards you and they do, 
make sure you have a positive angle to throw a pass. So that spacing itself taught me how to run a fast break. Mm. And then you kind of figured everything out because we ran simple motion offense and you just understood how to play. It was so easy for me. Um, my senior year going into that year, well, my sophomore year I started on the varsity, did well, um, was playing with the Gauchos and destroyed my knee uh, at Gaucho Gym. Mm. Then I had to sit out my whole junior year, came back strong before my senior year. And during the preseason, I was averaging a triple-double. I was averaging like 15 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists. No, I'm sorry. It was 15 points, 10 assists, and 10 steals. Wow. And yeah, I was yeah, I was a thief. I knew how to play the passing lanes. It was uncanny. Um, I knew how to play the passing lanes. And I would just run through passes. I would play possum. They throw it across. We, you know, we playing traditional zones. And I would just run through those passes and get layups all day long. It was crazy. But <laughs> the first game of my the night before the first game of my senior year, my appendix burst and I almost died. Mm. all that poison got all in my system almost died wow. and I had to sit out like 95% of the season I lost like 50 pounds I was like 110 pounds at one point mm. less than that probably I was like 100 pounds it was crazy because I was only 5'11 so then I ended up figuring out I'm gonna go to a junior college I wanted to go to one of the junior colleges in Kansas I was gonna go to um was I, gonna go? I was going to go to, I think my cousin was going to Independence and I was going to go to, I was, I was trying to go to Hutchinson. But then, you know, after the visit, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to Kansas. It's nothing. It's flat ground out here. There's cows and stuff. I'm not, this is not for me. So my cousin and I, we ended up going to California. And, you know, luckily our parents were pretty well off. So it wasn't a rush for us to start school, you know? So we just kind of, tried to figure it out in, in LA uh, that first year, especially. Um, it, and this is the eighties. So, you know, it was, you know, gang infested. And I didn't realize the gang culture in, in LA. I didn't realize that this is like some real, this is when it was at its height. Like this is boy, this is b before boys in the hood. Boys in the hood was tame. Like, <laughs> this is when the drive-bys was going. This is 1987. Like, yeah. crack cocaine was, you know, girls was called strawberries. You know, it was crazy. Anybody that from Cali that sees this knows exactly what I'm talking about. And um, I survived it. And I survived in one of the worst parts, which was the jungles. So I was there with the bloods. And, you know, I had to learn that culture because once you live in a certain area, you're now gang affiliated. Mm -hmm. So you go someplace you say, what set you from or where you from you better know what neighborhood you're in you better know who you're talking to you better know what not to say sometimes you just don't say nothing sometimes like i'm just a hooper man i'm from, I'm from new york or whatever you know so <laughs> bring out the accent crazy. there intentionally <laughs> yeah yo, i'm from new york son i don't know you know uh, all right go ahead i'll stall you out you know oh, those are crazy times but when i'm out there i was like a celebrity you know, because I could dribble the ball, I could do things with the basketball that they hadn't seen before. You know, my crossover, the up fakes, just my handle. I throw the ball between your legs, behind your back. Mm -hmm. I wrap the ball behind my back and your back at the same time and blow by you and throw an alley-oop and dunk it. I was, 
you know, it was New York City. It was Showtime basketball for me. So yeah. um, that was okay. And then I ended up playing Juco ball uh, at Bakersfield College for my second year. And I was one of the top guys in Juco. And I initially went to, oh, um, excuse me, Oregon State. And that lasted about a week and a half. Uh, I was only going there because there was a guy out there that was going there named Ernest Killiam. And when I got out there for summer school, I found out that he had a stroke back home in LA. And I was like, man, I'm going home. I'm, I'm not going to be out here by myself. Yeah. He still ended up going back to school. And he ended up actually having a stroke and dying while playing at Oregon State. So that was that was rough. So then I ended up migrating to Middle Georgia, Georgia College. How did I find that spot? I had a good friend I played, grew up with, played ball with, and Daryl Flowers who was who was out there. And he said, "Man, just come go to school with me." And I was like, "All right, I'm not doing nothing. I'm in New York, getting in trouble, you know, hanging with my family, you know, the bad side, you know, um, in the projects. I don't know why, but it was exciting, you know, it was the projects. It was, you know." And um, I ended up loving Georgia and moving to Atlanta after school, after, you know, graduating and so forth. Yeah. And um, I've been here ever since. Gotcha. Talk about how, you know, the, the training kind of, you know, you kind of came up doing that, you know, as you were playing, you know, it's not really something that you, uh, you know, you kind of been doing it for a couple of years, uh, I'm assuming since then. So kind of talk about that. Wow. Training was was also a natural thing because, you know, growing up, people would, you know, the older guys would teach you things. Mm -hmm. So it was always like an each one teach one type of thing. It was always like, uh, I'll give an example. One of the guys I grew up watching was a guy named Kenny Parker. And anybody who's heard the Boogie Down Productions song where KRS-One says, my DJ name is Kenny, it's Kenny Parker. Kenny Parker, Keith Karras, one of his brothers, a 6'9 center that played for Lincoln High School in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And he was an amazing basketball player. I mean, he, we called him Tree. He could do it all, could shoot, could dunk. And they would let me play with them and they would teach me things. And as I learned things, I would pass it down to younger guys that were, you know, behind me, two, three, four years behind me. Mm -hmm. And we had a guy named uh, LaVon, who was Daryl Flowers' brother. He learned a move from a guy in Coney Island named Spicius Kilpatrick. And that move was the up fake, that hesitation up fake where you hands up. You know, they call it a bunch of different things now. Yeah. And that move passed down to me like in 1983. So it's funny to me that 30 something years later, kids are doing this move like, look what I can do, you know, but they have no idea where the origin of this move came from. Mm -hmm. So teaching the game to younger kids was always in me. So when I was in LA and I wasn't playing college ball, I was just kind of finding myself. I actually, you know, um, coached a, uh, a local AAU team, played against some national guys. Um, one of the players we played against was a guy named Sean Tarver, who ended up going to UCLA. Another kid, um, it was Mike McWilliams or whatever, but just some top players. Sean Tarver was like an elite player, you know, back in the days. If, if guys Google him, they'll see, you know, he was an elite LA guy, whatever, went to UCLA, had a good career. Yep. Um, so in doing that, it was always in my blood. So when I moved out here to Atlanta, and which was like 94, 95, 
I would be in the gym working on my game at run and shoot and guys would see me always dribbling around the court before I played. And they would say, hey, man, teach me that. What, this? Okay, cool. So we'd be on the empty courts working on our game and stuff before you play. Because in those days, if you played at run and shoot and you lost, oh, you was going to be sitting down for about a half hour, 45 minutes. Yeah. And you didn't want to leave that gym without winning a couple games. You didn't. It was just on the main court, too, on court four. Yeah. No, that was the main court. So I ended up having an audience of people on a regular basis. And then it got to the point where people would say, you know, hey, I'll pay you to train me, teach me on a regular basis. I'm like, okay, just give me 20 bucks, you know? And it became a thing for me. Um, then I had um, a guy who's really close to me, um, named Terrell, Terrell Ware. He graduated college and then, you know, he moved to Atlanta, had him staying with me and he wanted to play for the uh, USBL. So I started training him in 95 um, when he finished school. Also had a young guy named uh, Jamison Brewer, who at the time I met was an eighth grader in 95. And he ended up going to Tri-Cities High School and then he went to a prep school and then on to Auburn and then to the NBA draft. So he was my first guy that I trained on a regular basis that made it to the NBA in 2001 so for me it's always been a thing if i'm in the gym i'm always passing jewels so that's when it started for me it was it wasn't i'm gonna create a business of being a trainer it was let me share what i have each it's each one teach one yeah. i know that's the name of an aau team but that's been a saying for 40 50 years you know in new york city you know culture basketball culture mm. Um, talk about your your involvement with AN1, how that came about, um, and kind of you know how you you know took off with them, and you know you're doing mixtapes and, and the tours, and you know talk about some of that. Um, it's crazy because they they did a documentary, they start recorded stuff for a documentary like last year, and nobody called me, and I was like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it was bad blood. That's why. Um, so this is. These are all facts. The annual mixtape tour is an idea that I came up with back in 1996. I met the owners, one of the owners, one was named Tom Austin, and then he had an intern with him. I think his name was Dave. But anyway, they I was working at Champs Foot Champ Sports at uh, Shannon Mall, which is a mall that doesn't exist anymore. It's by the airports in Union City. Anyone who's from Atlanta knows, you know, Union City, you know, 85 South or whatever. And basically I saw two white boys walking in the store with huge bags. And I was like, I know they're not stealing. They look too clean cut. They got something in the bag. So I walked over to him and said, you know, as a salesperson, you always want to keep people on edge, on their toes. You want to shock them or whatever. You know, it's, it's a sales tactic for me and it's just a personality thing for me. So I said, hey man, what you white boys doing with them big ass bags in here? We just trying to steal something? And they start laughing. It's like, nah, we work for N1. Because they had an N1 t-shirt back then. The N1 t-shirts were trash-talking t-shirts with sayings like, your jumper is as ugly as your girl or, you know, whatever. And it had like a faceless, faceless man with muscles shooting the ball or dunking on somebody or whatever. And it was crazy. And they had just come out with N1 shorts because before they just sold t-shirts. Then they came out with the shorts. The shorts were baggy. And baggy shorts became a thing. You know, back when uh, Chris Webber and them started doing it, but Michael Jordan started it, but now it was fashionable. Now yeah. it was 
companies were making baggy shorts. So anybody that made baggy shorts and, you know, nice t-shirts, you know, you're going to rock them. You know, it was a nice hookup. So I said, we love your product in here. You know, um, this is a big seller. So, you know, start a conversation with them. And then they said, well, we're, we're trying to put together uh, and one basketball shoe. And I was like, okay, so what's in the bag? Then they said, we have a bunch of samples of the sneaker and we wanna be able to show it, you know, and get feedback from customers and whatever and tell them what you like. Do you like this upper? Do you like this material? Do you like, you know, this tongue? Do you like, you know, whatever. So I said, cool. I said, you can set up on my sneaker bay over there and as customers come in, you can get their input, no problem. And we became fast friends. Tom Austin was, was a really good guy. He was the guy that was in charge of sneakers. So he was the guy that was overseas developing sneakers and so forth. So um, after they finished, I said, you know what? I'm going to call a bunch of the other stores in the area, the Foot Lockers, the other champs, Kids Foot Locker, whoever. And I'll let them, you know, they'll, they'll let you in. They'll let you do the same thing. Because they were getting research, not just to build a sneaker, but to build the sneaker for Stefan Marbury. So, you know, unbeknownst to anyone they kind of knew they were going to be able to sign Stefan Marbury to a shoe deal and they wanted to be able to give him his own signature shoe which was pretty dope um so after we you know kind of made that you know fast friendship I said you know what and I need to take you guys to run and shoot because what y'all should do is y'all should just put together a team of like hired guns guys that would just go around from place to place park to park and wearing the t-shirts, you know, and talking trash, you know, just like these trash talking t-shirts and just kill people. I said, that would be a dope marketing idea. Mm. And it was like, hmm, that's interesting. So we went to run and shoot. We saw all the incredible talent there. And the first team that Ann one actually sponsored as far as from a so-called streetball level came out of run and shoot. But the front office guys that run and shoot, the guys they put were not those type of players. They weren't like, the super skilled trash talking guys or fundamentally sound older guys wasn't the, the young, you know, sexy, you know, high flying guys. So it was corny. I called um, Tom Austin while he was in back in Paoli. They were from Paoli, Pennsylvania is where their office were, was, excuse me. And I said, yo, this, this team is losing games. You know, cause they were playing against colleges and so forth, you know, exhibition games. This wasn't a good look. So they pulled the plug on that, but they still kept a relationship with um, Run and Shoot. And they had, they were selling sneakers out of their sneaker store back there. And they would give out mixtapes if you bought some sneakers or and one product, which is what they did at Foot Action as well. So they, at the time, they were just, they just had like the skip to my loot tape, which was crazy. You know, somebody had, you know, uh, I guess his high school coach had footage of Skip and uh, one of the guys who worked at and one at the time. Um, he's a culture curator right now, man, he's set free. He makes the hip hop toys and stuff right now. He's, he's pretty big with that. Mm-hmm. He came up with the idea of not just making a mixtape, making a video mixtape with the players playing and having music mixed in underground music that nobody had heard before. And by doing that, it created a sensation because Skip's moves were, were mind blowing. You know, I mean, he was already a legend in New York for the way he played, you know, at Rucker Park and just parks all over the city. But, you know, he was also a college player at the time as well. And he was trying to make it to the pros. So basically, since they scrapped the first idea of that traveling team, they said, you know, let's recreate this idea. And they had a game in New York and they grabbed a bunch of a bunch of streetball guys and they played a game and it did really well. They made a tape for it. 
the tape did well. It looked really good. And they had a DJ playing music while the guys played. And it was exciting. It was good. It was normal basketball for New York City. Yeah. We always play. We always played with a DJ, you know, in a park or whatever. That's just a normal thing. And I know it's probably a normal thing in DC as well. Mm. So with that being said, they was like, you know what? Let's do a tour with some of these guys we got here. You know, so they grabbed like, I think they had about seven, eight guys initially. And they called me and said, yo, we're going to do like a five city tour. And at the time I was putting together something in Atlanta called NBA Point Guard Weekend. And this was in 2000. And what was going on was we were basically hijacking NBA All-Star Weekend. I forget where it was at the time, but All-Star Weekend wasn't a big event early in the day. And we were getting some of the the top NBA point guards who weren't playing in the All-Star game to come to Atlanta to do like four days worth of whatever. We're going to create our own All-Star type situation, have a fashion show, um, parties, day party, pool party, you know, and then have, you know, like a, um, a an exhibition game with some of the NBA players and some other guys mixed in there, some celebrities and so forth. Yeah. And I had a car accident. So I was like, I just nixed the whole project with my, my partner, my man, Carlos Easterling. And then, and one called me, was like, yo, could we do our and one game after your or before your celebrity game your exhibition game during nba point guard weekend and i was like well that idea is scrapped so you know that's just on y'all y'all can do whatever y'all want to do so they asked me to market the game and i said well okay cool but i have a player for you this is kid out here named hot sauce it's a kid that i've known since 95 and every time he sees me asks me to teach him a move so i teach him moves and Every time I saw him again, he would say, hey, I learned that move and I added something to it. You know, unknown to me, he was homeless and sleeping upstairs in the gym. So this kid would spend 10, 12 hours playing basketball, dribbling the basketball in front of a mirror, you know, doing these fancy moves that he created on his own after, well, his interpretation of the moves rather. It wasn't, he didn't create them, but he gave his own interpretation. And then, you know, some of my, my cousins moved down here, my homeboys moved to, to Atlanta and they would show him moves too. And he would just take them and flip them. So I told him about hot sauce and they said, okay, great. I said, but they were like, his name is hot sauce. I was like, yeah, yeah. It's a Southern thing, man. You, you, I'm telling you, he's special. They'd never seen him. They just on my word alone. Um, and they said, well, can we talk to him? I was like, uh, I don't know where he is. I gotta find him. So it took me a couple of weeks to find him. He was in jail, off of some nonsense or whatever. He had to pay a fine, he didn't have the money. So they was like, we'll lock you up for a year or you pay the fine. So I found him, bailed him out. And um, I mean, I put him on a plane and that was it. You know, from there, he went to the first city in, in Los Angeles and he put on a show. And by the time they came to Atlanta, which was, might've been the final city, um, it was up to me to market the event. So I brought the players on the AU campus. We were doing it at Morris Brown College, which isn't open anymore. They had a huge gym, for like 3,500 people. We sold that gym out. It was ridiculous. People outside were screaming. We opened up the doors when the layup line was going on so the people would hear the, the <sighs> on the inside and they'd be like, oh my God, what's going on? So it's 3,500 people inside and probably 5,000 people outside. 
you know, so it was an urban event. It was basketball culture at its finest. It was a recreation of Rucker Park at its highest level with the Dr. J's and the, you know, the Destroyers and the Joe Hammonds, you know, Earl, you know, who, everyone, Earl Manigold. It was, it was like that. Dr. J, kids hanging from the ceiling, from the, from the, from the fences and so forth. Yeah. We took that out of the city and we brought it around the country. And from there, they said, you know what? This would be a great marketing ploy for the company because at the time they didn't have any NBA players. Mm-hmm. So the next year, you know, they signed everybody to a little contract and it just got bigger from there. Mm. Mm. What a story, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, let's talk about, you know, real quick, uh, something that that we were talking, uh, I was talking with a mutual friend, James Williams, uh, earlier today. He said that I got to ask you, is New York City still the Mecca of basketball? It is. It's the Mecca of basketball. It wasn't. Well, Madison Square Garden is considered the Mecca of basketball. And the reason they say that is just like um, the same. It's like when you make your journey to Mecca, you know, it's someplace where you go to, you know, um, someplace where you go to serve, someplace where you go to honor, someplace where you go to worship, you know, so that's Mecca. You know, so New York City, Mass Square Garden is hollowed ground. You know, when the Knicks in the 70s, they were like, you know, back, to, you know, I don't know if they were back to back, but they won a couple of championships in the 70s. And it was the most famous arena in basketball arena in the world. And it's because of the crowd. It wasn't because of the players, it's because of the crowd. You know, um, it's because of the people, how much they loved and worshiped the game. You know, so that's why they took the religious word Mecca and put it in the garden. So to this point, Master Square Garden is still one of the only basketball arenas in the world that, wow, has been consistently sold out for 30 years. Yeah. You know, like they do concerts at Master Square Garden and they break attendance records. Well, not attendance records because the place only holds 22,000, but they break records in terms of consecutive days being sold out. I think like Bruce Springsteen did um, when he did a concert there, Billy Joel, and they'd sell out for like 90 days straight for like the entire summer. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, the Knicks games are still some of the highest priced games in the country. So no, we don't have a winning team, but we have, you know, an arena that is consistently, consistently sold out if you get a good team there forget about it i mean for a regular team tickets will go for five thousand dollars on the floor you know so it's 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 the mecca in terms of um the arena the 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 passion the presence the the culture and so forth you know it's not it, it, it was never about we have the best ball players you know around the country at one point we did have the best ball players around the from around the country but california's always been in that conversation as well chicago's always been in that conversation philly dc have always been in that conversation it's only now that atlanta um has you know kind of i think snatched snatched the the crown away from the the normal inner cities that would dominate and i think 
it's between us, DC, North Carolina, California, Texas. Mm. And we've just had some great luck. And um, I think we've had a big change in the culture here in Georgia to where this was mostly a football state, but we've had an influx of people from around the country move here. People from the West Coast, mm. people from New York. New York is too expensive. Like, we spent $5,000. I had a, a girl we knew in, a, in Manhattan had an apartment and her rent was $5,000 a month. Her apartment was 400 square feet. I was like, wait, no. Um, uh-huh. I walked in and I was like, uh-huh. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, this is efficient, huh? 400 square feet, huh? Yeah, you got a bathroom, shower. You got everything right here. It's just one room. Yeah. $5,000 a month. Like who who can, $5,000 a month in Georgia is a million dollar house. That's your mortgage. So we've, we've gotten some input from everywhere around the country. You know, I was, I was about to ask you, you know, with run and shoot, do you think that that played a role in kind of shifting Georgia to more of a 50, 50 split with, you know, basketball and football? Uh, it helped because then you started to see people from all over the state, you know, on Saturdays, you get guys from, you know, middle Georgia, South Georgia, you know, North Georgia, everybody would try to migrate to the city. So if you didn't get in that gym by nine, 10 o'clock on a Saturday, you're not playing because mm. like eight, nine, 10, by, cause then it runs be over by one, two. You know, and during the week, it was all the people in the city flooding it three times a day, three different runs. And then, excuse me, on the weekends, you know, you had guys who, you know, the rappers, you know, they're at the party, you know, having a good time, you know, somebody from the other crew talking junk. What? Let's go to run a shoot right now. Let's bet money. You know, (laughs) even R. Kelly, you know, come through there on many occasions. I mean, I remember the first time he came. He was on tour and he's the worst. He was the worst. He was <laughs> so super cocky and arrogant and would have four guys on his team and they would only pass him the ball. No one else on his team was allowed to take a shot. So this dude would literally take every shot. Game go to 21, ones and twos, and this dude would take every single shot. I remember I played against him. I destroyed him. I was like, I'm not letting you score. No, no RB singer. They scoring points on me. As a matter of fact, no R&B singer has ever scored on me, except for Q from 112. That's my man, Q Parker. He, he gonna get that because Q really could hoop back then. But you know, I want to gas him up. I still killed him and his brother. I still, you know, that's our little. That's our little. You got R. Kelly songs to him as he beat him up before. I love it. All right, let's let's move real quick to uh, you know skill development because you know that's that's what you're all about. So talk about the the number one skill that needs to be taught at a higher level. Um, well, it's along the lines of shooting, and it's the footwork and necessary movements in shooting that mm-hmm. need to be taught. Pin downs, curls, dribble handoffs, fades, lifts, um, being able to sprint the floor, catch and shoot. And there's footwork involved in that that you must teach. So one of the simple things in in teaching of the footwork is every movement I make has to be athletic. Long athletic strides. I can't 
shuffle my feet. There should be no stutter stepping into a shot because the defender is not stutter stepping to play defense. He's running in long strides to defend you. Mm -hmm. So if you're stutter stepping through and not being able to step athletically through and run, catch one, two shot, no, you're not going to make it to the next level. You have to think about it. The percentages, and these are some crazy percentages, um, nationally per class, only 1% of each class are going to get a Division One scholarship. Then mm. that's per state, 1% per state. Now, there are a few states that have different numbers. Number one is, I think it's you guys. You guys are like at 3%. Mm. And then... Um, North Carolina is right behind you, just 3%, 3.7%. And Georgia, we're right there, like 3.1%. So 3% of y'all kids, North Carolina kids, our kids, go Division One. Everywhere else is 1%. California, 1%. Texas, 1%. Some states are like less than a percent, you know, because of their, you know, they're not as good. But, and Cali, of course, can have a lot of players because it's a bigger state. You know, it's like four different climate zones out there. Texas is a huge state. They have 1% huge state as well. So a lot of players come out of there. But if if you can't master that simple thing, it's not going to work. You know, you have players right now in college who are struggling shooting the basketball that were considered top five, top 10 players. And it's because they weren't trained correctly. You know, playing AAU basketball and excelling at AAU basketball it doesn't necessarily mean that you have the tools to excel at the college level. And those tools are the simple fundamentals, the footwork fundamentals, the ability to sprint, catch and shoot. If I'm chasing you, can you run away from me, catch and shoot? Mm. Now, think about it. If you're in the one percentile as a high school player, that means 99% of the kids you're playing against are bums. <laughs> I mean, and I say that in a nice way, you know, you're a bum. You're like, there's players and there's bums. And there's guys who don't want to be bums that want to be players. So it's yeah. either this or that, you know? And so you're killing bums most of the time. Now you go to college, now you're playing against that 1%. Yeah. And then there's even a smaller margin or less than 1% that are going to be NBA players that you have to play against. So now it's turned all the way up. Yeah. You were the best athlete in your region or your state. Well, now you're playing against players who are the best athletes in their states, you know, the best athletes in the world, possibly. So the footwork in shooting is so necessary. Mm. You know, you have guards, you look at the mixtapes, you have some guards who get fast breaks, they're dunking the ball all day long. They get mm. to college, oh, they finger roll, or they land it up. You know, or really, you can't even finger roll in college no more. Somebody's going to beat that. <laughs> but you got to have a nice floater. You got to be able to teach them to shoot, take, make that shot over the top of the square as far as a floater. Yep. But the shooting angle, think about it. I don't want to name names for these kids because right now they're going through a real bad time shooting the basketball in college. But there's a lot of top kids that are struggling. Mm. And it's killing their chances of playing in the NBA, which is a, a, a jump shot league now. Yeah. So if this is a jump shot league and you're shooting 12%, 15%, 25%, I'm not drafting you. I'm not giving you guaranteed money. You crazy. I'm losing my, I'm a GM. I'm losing my job for you. Nah, I'm good. I'm good. Nah, I'll take that senior. I'll take that Peyton Pritchard, you know, versus yep. a freshman. 
question real quick, just nerdy basketball question, you know, with the training side of things, especially on footwork. Uh, you like the one, two, or you like the hop before the shoot, or do you teach both? I teach one, two. I teach one, two because, um, wow. It's a rhythm. Basketball is a rhythm game. Mm -hmm. So anytime you're out of rhythm, you know, um, it's a problem. Now, there are people who teach a hop because they get to explode up, you know, into the shot a lot more. But for me, the simple reality is if you're hitting shots, you're going to get chased off the line at some point. Mm. So you need to be in rhythm one, two, so I can one, two, I can go into my shot fake a lot smoother. Yep. You know what I'm saying? I can turn my hips a lot smoother if I'm in that rhythm. If I'm coming here, one, two, with boom. Or I can rip through here, rip through here. I watch Steph, I watch Clay, I watch Reggie, um, uh, uh, Reggie Williams. I mean, I watched uh, Reggie Williams. Miller. Reg Reggie Miller, yeah. Reggie Williams, the other guy. But um, <laughs> I watched Dale Ellis. I watched, um, I watched Steve Kerr. And Steve Kerr was a hop guy, yeah. you know, but he also could one too, yeah. you know? So there are very few guys that can do what he did. But the difference with him is when he would hop, he couldn't take a dribble and then shoot. And that's one of the things that mm -hmm. I dissected. Guys who would take the hop, they were stuck in that shot. Anytime mm -hmm. Steve Kerr put the ball on the ground, his average went significantly down. You know, BJ, BJ Armstrong was a one-two shoot guy. Mm -hmm. Craig Hodges was a hop guy, you know, which is weird, you yeah. know, but he elevated so much on his shot and he's unique. He, he might be, he could be, you know, arguably the best shooter of all time. You know, of course, everybody will say Steph, whatever, but I watched this guy. Like this guy was special. This guy won multiple three-point championships. You know, Larry Bird was a one-two guy, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a matter of choice. I just feel that by taking that, my choice is the one, two, there's a more variety of things you can do when you get to basketball, mm. you know, and I teach a lot of physical things, physiological things. Like I do speed and agility with the Vertimax, you know, and I saw one of the questions you had, I'll wait for you to ask you, but I'll wait <laughs> on it. If the okay. number was off, but I, I'll correct you on it. It's no problem. <laughs> okay. I look at the physical side of things. Like I can't watch games live because I like to slow things down. I like to rewind. How did he get open? Yeah. What was his footwork on that shot? How much time did he need? Hmm. I have a client who, and I, I don't like naming my clients, but last year he finished second only to um, James Harden in jump shots and a foul. And one of the things we changed in his game was, you know, you guys who, there are guys who want to take the jump shot and they pull their hand back. And everyone's closing out hot. They're trying to run you off the line. So what we talked about was, no, we want them to hit your hand mm. because the referee's going to give you that foul. All you got to do is act a little bit, just slightly. Don't overdo it. If you overdo it, referee's not going for it. Mm. So this, you know, my, my client, we just focused on shot, hold it. And I would smack his arm with one of, my, one of my clubs every time he shot the ball. I would just hit a boom and he had to hit a certain amount. And over the past couple of years, he's broken some records in regards to shooting, you know, off the bench and so forth. And 
wow, he's having a career year this year. But like I said, I don't like, I don't like naming my clients or whatever, because I want to be behind the scenes. Mm. You know, that's, this is about them. This is not about me. Mm. We'll get to that in a second. I have a quick question. What have you found to be most successful in getting players out of a shooting slump? Is it mainly mental? Form shots. Form shots. Form shots. That's it. Form shots. And I, what I do is we do high arcing form shots. So the the we, we shoot high arcing form shots so that he shoots the ball higher than the top of the backboard. And what that does is if you can hit, if you can take those shots, stand, no jumping, and hold your release point high in the air and make your shot higher than the top of the backboard, like way higher. And it drops in, you're practicing control and you're practicing touch. And we do that from all areas on the, on the court. And we hit, got to hit two in a row from here, two in a row from there. And then you take a step back, two in a row, step back. And we go all the way to the free throw line. And then we'll take his regular shot. And he feels how softer the shot is at that point. And it's because of the high arcing shots. And it's weird how I learned that. I learned that because I had a guy who I played against back in the days. His name was Anthony Joseph. We called him Juice. He was like Michael Jordan, you know. <laughs> and he was like one of the greatest players I've ever seen. He was so smooth. He was everything. And we were at the, we were playing the game one time and he had gotten fouled. And he's at the free throw line. He hit the first free throw. And I was talking trash to him. He was older than me. You know, he was one of my like OGs, you know, he, he lives in Virginia now. So maybe he'll see this one day. Okay. And um, he looked at me, he's like, Mark. I was like, what? It's like, it's going high. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he shot the ball and it literally went about 30 feet up in the air and came straight down through the net, barely touched the rim. And I was like, what did he just do? Is he Jesus? Like, what? what did he just do and so over the years i copied it and mimicked it and what i found out was it made my shot softer when i worked on that simple thing because it's all timing you know and then i started doing um and i'm giving this away free i started working on jump shots with my eyes closed and that was on accident as well you know after michael jordan welcomed mutombo into the nba by shooting those free throws with his eyes closed i said he did that in an arena of 20,000 plus people. How is that possible? He felt that confident. And then I started to realize I've seen pictures of guys hitting jump shots and the defender's hand was in their face. So you took his eyes away. How did he make the shot? And then I realized it's not about what you see. It's how the ball feels coming out of your hand. And anyone who's ever shot a basketball, you've taken a shot and it's felt good coming out of your hand. And so you knew it was going in. Yeah. So because you already knew the distance, you are comfortable with the distance and it's a repetitive thing. So I started teaching another client how to shoot threes with his eyes closed. And we started with free throws and then we would go to, okay, you got to hit five threes from seven spots on the court with your eyes closed. You know, you don't have to hit five in a row, but you got to hit five after we shoot. The first spot, he would hit two out of three consecutive. The second spot, two out of two, excuse me, two out of five consecutive. The third spot, three out of five consecutive. The fourth spot, three out of five. Fifth spot, five out of five. Sixth spot, five out of five. Seventh spot, five out of five. NBA threes with his eyes closed because we gave him that much confidence in that it's all about how the ball feels coming out of your hand. Mm -hmm. You know? Now, he would miss in between, 
but he would just go on a roll and it's like swish, 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 swish. Mm. I had another client did that. I did that for, gave him that same recipe. And he was out of the NBA. He went to a workout with the San Antonio Spurs. And after the workout, he was shooting jumpers by himself with his eyes closed. And one of the trainers was like, they were looking at him and was like, is he shooting with his eyes closed? <laughs> and it was like, hey, can you do that again? He was like, yeah. He ended up getting signed by the Washington Wizards and he ended up having the best shooting career, shooting, shooting season of his career yeah. with the work he did. So I'm, I'm proud of, you know, stories like that because, you know, it's, it's in the same correlation conversation, what you're talking about as far as shooting. There yeah. are so many small details that you have to figure out for yourself in the way you teach. You know, you don't want to, you can't teach shooting the way somebody else teaches shooting. You know, you have to have your own story, your own lane. You have to actually understand that simple process because it might not work for everyone. Yep. You might look at a guy and say, okay, I can't change his jump shot, but I could change his release. I could change his release point. I can change the fact that he let the ball rest in his palm. I can change the fact that um, he doesn't step into a shot. I can change the fact that... Um, he, when he follows through, he doesn't hold his follow through. So there's a lot of small details you can fix in a shooter that people don't pay attention to. A lot of trainers will just let them shoot. Good shot, rebound for him. He made 20 in a row. Yeah, he made 20 slow shots in a row. Yeah. Those shots were flat. So now can he shoot over somebody that has a seven foot two wingspan and they're jumping 25, 30 inches off the ground? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you find different ways of challenging your guy. So that gotcha. was it. Gotcha. Just out of curiosity, do you you know Daryl Green that played at Niagara? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. Gotcha. I just didn't know if you had crossed past at some point. He's from New York? Uh he's not from New York. He's actually from Maryland. So he went he went to DeMatha, um, is a coach there now. He played overseas after uh playing a four year career at uh Niagara and uh starting there and he had he had a good career there. So just didn't know if your paths is crossed though. DC players are and I gotta throw it out, DC players are they are the group that really they they scared the shit out of me, excuse my language. <laughs> When I saw those Georgetown Hoyas, I didn't know what to make of them. I'm like, and then they were like, all those guys played on the same high school team. I said, that's not possible. (laughs) And then they were talking about dudes were averaging seven points a game, eight points a game. I'm like, these dudes? So it taught me a lot. It taught me about their willingness to win, the team aspect, the unselfishness aspect. how they play defense. Most kids don't realize that they suck defensively until they go to college and they don't play because they don't know how to play defense. And when I look at the the DMV teams, that's one of the things that they have an advantage over everyone else in the country. Those guys sit down and play defense. Guys from Paul the Six, guys from DeMatha, they can sit down and move their feet you know, whereas I can tell that they spent an entire week without touching the basketball and they just worked on defense, rebound. They worked on all the small, intangible things that lead to wins, yep. you know, whereas a lot of high school teams don't do that. I look at the fact that, you know, you guys 
have a skills trainer, a strength trainer, and they take pride in their, what they do. Yep. You know, myself, I was for the first time, well, not the first time, but I was trained, helping to train some of the guys at Wheeler High School. They won the state championship at the highest level in Georgia, 7A basketball. And, you know, the coach bought me a ring. It's like, so I got a ring. I'm like, whoa. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is an incredible feeling. And it, you know, but it, it all started from watching the Muggsy Bogues, you know, the, the, the Reggie Williams, the Reggie Lewis, the, uh, what's the boy name? Uh, was, it, is it, was it Graham? You know, uh, uh, Michael Graham, he played for Georgetown back in the days, old school, 80s. You know, just watching those guys, how they were winners and how they did the small things to win, that really changed me as I got older, hmm. you know, in regards to how do you win? Like, I know how to score points. I know how to pack the, the stats, but how do you win? That's a different conversation. Definitely, definitely is. So um, I want to read a tweet to you and then uh, get your reaction to it. So uh, a trainer that I know, Kyle Jacoby, shout out to him. Uh, he said, if an athlete trains with me one time, I have no claim to their success. If an athlete trains with me a thousand times, I still have no claim to their success. That is always the athlete's conclusion to make, not my own. So I want you to give me your state of the union address on, uh, on trainers, uh, what's good, what's bad, and what you would like to see. Um, guys do better and what, what would you like to see changed in, in their approach to things? Um, let me see how I can put this in the nicest way possible. I think <laughs> that, I think that what he, was that a tweet? Yep. Um, yeah, I think that tweet was bullshit. Um, because that's taking the humble path. Um, and I think you only need to be humble if you are full of yourself and you're not actually putting in the work necessary to be that great person. One of the things I tweeted not too long ago was stars only come outside to kick ass. <laughs> you don't see interviews with Drake. You don't see interviews with Jay-Z, Beyonce. You know, you don't see interviews with those people because they're legends. You know what I'm saying? And when they do come out, they're, they're, it's a show. It's like, I'm here. Myself, I've, I put in so much work. Like, I'm not going to go to sleep tonight till three or four o'clock in the morning. And a lot of it is because I'm doing so much film study. I'm watching games, um, watching Synergy, um, rewinding tapes um, of, of games and people and move, on movements and so forth. So for me, I pride myself in saying, I'm going to make you a better player, you know? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've seen over my, wow, year 27 is I've had clients leave my training and fail, not do well. And so is it because they're not with me? If it were one time, okay. If it was 10 times, okay. 27 years, 10 times, not bad. But when it's a, a good amount of people who either, you know, the parents don't want to pay anymore or, you know, they want to go with some other trainer because he was nicer or he lied to them or, you know, he, you know, oh, come on, tell you anything, make you believe that um, you're better than you actually are. I'm not doing, I'm not sugarcoating anything. No, 
if I train you, if I'm working with you consistently, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a piece of myself, you know, pause. Um, it's, <laughs> sorry, but it's, I only teach things that I've done. Um, I only talk about things that I do. I, I, it doesn't make sense that you have guys who are teaching moves that they've never done before in their life. You have guys that are looking at NBA players' movements. They're going to the gym. They're mimicking the movements. They're mastering that mimic. And then they go to clients and they recreate the name of the move and they're able to teach the move. And I'm just like, wow, that's the worst thing you could do because what they don't have is they don't have any insight on that movement and they're not developing a foundation for that movement, you know? So what's the foundation? The foundation is if it's an in and out cross, am I looking in that direction? Am I stepping in that direction? Am I making sure I want to go to the left? So I'm going to in and out cross to the right. I'm going to in and out, step hard that way. If he doesn't step, I'm going to go by him. But if I step and I slow down a little bit, make him slide, now I get a hard cross. Now let's work on that hard cross. Mm. Snap my wrist or is it an overhand cross? I like to snap my wrist low, low, lower than my knee cross. So it's a breakdown. So instead of breaking that move down into pieces and layers, mm. they just do one move and they've mimicked the move of that player they saw on TV, but they haven't taught him that move mm. or that movement. You okay. know what I'm saying? So for me, I'm giving you that. So I'm when, when I train players for a certain amount of years, they all have, and it's funny because people say it, they'll say, man, they got that monster lab package, you know, which are certain movements that we do, that we do them so much. When a kid is about to play, I know if a kid of mine who I've trained for at least two years, he's about to play, I know the move he's going to do before he does it. Mm. And if he doesn't do it, I'm pissed. And that kid is pissed because he knew he, he knew what he should have done. Because we work on these things. We talk about these things. And we do so many of them that it's muscle memory. It's, a, it's you know, this is, this is our, these are our moves. This is what we do. So I'm responsible for that. Mm. The kid is responsible for getting, for getting there. But see me, I'm not going to be on videos Hey, look at what we're doing. Nah, <laughs> I'm responsible for that, but I'm I'm in the back. Yeah. Think about this. Nobody knew who GMs were 20 years ago. Yep. Now every GM wants to be on TV. They want to do interviews. They want the credit. They want to be on social media. Mm. Why? Like, when did that start? When did the me, me, me process start that says, I want the credit? See me, no, I'm not gonna be out there asking, yeah, I did this for him. I'm, I'm throwing his name all over the place. But I know what I did impacted him in a major way. So I'm gonna take credit in, within myself knowing the work that we put in, the passion I had to help develop that kid. Because I like the players that nobody loves. If they have desire to be better, and I could look at them and I could tell them before we start, yeah, no, you're not going to be on D1 play, but you're going to be a good varsity player. Mm. Or I could see a kid that has potential and I'll be like, nah, we're going to make, you're going to get a D1 scholarship. 
or worst case scenario, you're gonna get a D2 scholarship. Mm. But you're gonna get a scholarship. Let's go. You know, I had a player, Terrell Burden, who's at Kennesaw State right now. When I met him, he was after his freshman year in high school. He's playing JV. Then they made him play another year of JV. And I was like, you know, you, you should be a varsity player. Mother made the move, got him to a different school. And we worked. When I say we worked, I mean, we were in the gym till one o'clock in the morning on a couple of occasions. You know, workouts were done at 10. We were in there three hours after. So this 5'8 player went from being a JV player to scoring 1,000 points his last two years in high school, getting a Division One scholarship, um, broke their vertical leap record, 39-and-a-half-inch uh, no-step vertical at 5'8. Oh, yeah, it like two block shots a game in high school mm. at 5'8. You know, was dunking, doing 360s, all kind of stuff. Yeah, And that's an imprint. You know, I know when he's about to do a certain move, a hard cross behind the back, you know, a floater, because these are things we worked on. You know, we worked on his ability to hang in the air, tap the ball, tap on one side, reverse on the other side. Those are things we worked on. So that's an imprint, you know? So no, I'm I'm going to take credit behind the scenes with that player, but I'm yeah. not going to grandstand and be like, it's me, it's me. No, it's really him. Yeah. He put work in because... If we're working, I'm kicking your butt. I'm kicking your butt. So, you know, you got to be willing to deal with that. You got to be willing for me to say, yeah, that sucked. That was a terrible move. That was awful. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That was terrible. You got to do better. Because I know you could do better because I saw you do it already. So let's be consistent. Gilbert Arenas said something on a podcast. He said, players, I'm paraphrasing, uh, players shouldn't be listening to anyone that hasn't been in their shoes and played the game at that level. Um, while I think that there's value added from someone who's competed at those elite levels, I feel like telling kids that they should filter who they listen to um, isn't a good idea for amateur basketball. Um, what What's your opinion on that? Gilbert Arenas is not a trainer. Gilbert Arenas was an elite basketball player. Um, Gilbert Arenas was one of the hardest working basketball players that I saw come up. And see, Gilbert Arenas was going to be good because he was, he was, he wasn't cocky. He was confident. Yep. Cocky is when you just talk trash and you didn't put any work behind it. Deshaun Stevenson. Yes. <laughs> Gilbert is legendary for his NBA workouts after practice, 1500 shots after practice playing full court one-on-one -on -one when he wasn't getting any playing time in Golden State, you know? Um, so when he did get his shot, he wasn't, he wasn't going to miss, you know, but Gilbert, Gilbert is not an expert in skill development. You know, what he did for himself, can he replicate that with other kids until he does so then he's not an expert and he's not qualified to judge now, he's qualified to look at clowns doing clown workouts and the nonsense and basically say, no, that's not going to work at any level. That's not going to translate. But like Gilbert, like we couldn't really, we could have a conversation about basketball. We could have a conversation about training. But the detail in which I go into the training is going to be at a different level. And it, it, it shows how much I've put into my craft. Yep. Um, when I worked out, when I played, I would have a drill I would do called game winners. And I, I could put this challenge out to anybody around the country. So it was shooting threes. 
and you shoot 10 threes to start off, go from five spots, shoot 10 threes to start off, and then you'd have to hit seven shots in a row after the 10 threes. Now, once you get the three number six and you made it, now you have to hit that game-winning shot, which is the seventh three. If you miss, now you got to hit eight in a row. If you miss that, you make it seven in a row and you miss that eighth shot, now you got to hit nine in a row. I would do that every day. And there were times where I'd have to hit like 25 shots in a row from one spot, tired as hell, you know, one spot for 30 minutes and I would complete it, you know, um, it, it's, it's a certain feeling you get when you're, you know, that game winning shot, like, okay, this is a game winner. Like, you know, there's another drill. There's the uh, Matt Bonner drill. Um, and I learned this from one of my NBA guys who, who schooled me on it. Um, he was like, you come in the gym, first shot you take is a layup, second shot you take from the free throw line, third shot is a three. Now, if you miss any of those shots, you cannot do that drill again until the next day. And it was based on Matt Bonner's theory of, I need to be able to hit my first three shots because I, I play off the bench. So that first shot off the, when I come off the bench has to go in. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's all, it's theory, it's, it's practice, it's um, a practical application of what you know, what you're teaching that needs to show. So with Gilbert's, you know, saying you like, okay, I didn't play in the NBA, but I've trained players who've made it to the NBA. I've trained NBA players once they've gone to the NBA, gone through it, and I've helped their, their, their percentages. I've helped them become better players. I've helped them become more athletic. I've helped them become more knowledgeable. So me, I'm different. You can talk about everybody else, not me. <laughs> not me. That's the New York in you, man. I love it. <laughs> no, that's the, I lived in Los Angeles. I've lived in Atlanta and I lived in New York. So it's, I, it's like, it's like when you study something so much, you don't know all the answers, but I got a pretty good yeah. feel for most of them. And if I don't know, I'm going to investigate. Like I'm confident because I'm willing to put the work in. I want to. I want to learn. I've spent time at Kentucky, at Louisville, at UCLA, watching them. Mm -hmm. You know, watching them develop players, watching how they run plays. Okay, if that's the play they're running, he needs to have that footwork. And a lot of times they're working with freshmen who don't have the footwork, don't have the athleticism, don't have the the skill set on the shot. They were just great in their neighborhood or in their community. And now they're at division one and everything's moving a lot faster and they can't compete because no one ever pushed them or trainers. How many trainers have gone to a NBA practice? First of all, it's hard to get into one. You got to have special, a special privilege. Mm -hmm. How many have gone to a college practice, which is easier to get into but have you gone in there and really studied it and videotaped and broke down what they did and say, okay, he's going to get the ball here, here, and here. So when we work out, we're going to work on three options from this spot, three options from that spot to make the player more efficient. Yep. For me, it's about professionalism. Mm. And you want to be a, if you want to be a pro, the definition of a pro is consistent excellence. Mm. If you're a doctor, if you're a surgeon, you cannot have a bad day at work. If you're a pilot, you cannot have a bad day at work. If you're a policeman, you can't have a bad day at work. You're gonna kill somebody. So as an NBA player, you're a paid entertainer. 
I'm paying $2,500 a seat for these front row seats for me, my kids, my wife, my girl, whoever. We want to see a show. We didn't come here to see you have a bad game. Yeah. No. You're a performer. Perform. And they don't understand that part. They, oh, I'm, no, I'm, no. You're a performer. You're a paid performer. Yeah. 